0: We get asked a lot of questions in life, don't we? And some of those questions are more important than other questions. I got a uh, thing through the post this week, a little piece of uh, card or paper. Maybe it was last week and I only opened it this week. But it tells me that I get a chance to answer a question in a couple of weeks' time. One question that the government would like to know what I think. And I'm sure you have received the same thing. If you get to vote and that's a good thing to do, there are lots of questions in life, some Bigger than others. I suppose a a bigger question than what the government uh, asks is a question the minister asks. Will you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, or or whichever way around that goes? And uh, when that question is asked, it's a key question, a key moment. But it seems to me, and I I don't think you can really argue with me if, if, if you've read the Bible, that actually the most important question. Of all questions, the question that uh, we have to answer ultimately is, what do you think of Jesus? That really is the issue. That really is the question that ultimately all of us have to answer. We're going through Mark's Gospel at the moment. We've been going through it for uh, several weeks now. And we're seeing as we go that this question, who is Jesus, is hanging over the whole of the book. Now it's it's interesting actually that in the first chapter, in the first verse, the first line, Mark makes it absolutely clear who Jesus is. He says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And so There's no doubt for the reader who Jesus is. We know who he is. And after the the smoke clears and and things kind of come down to to earth with a bump and you see Jesus in action doing his ministry uh, and uh, speaking and teaching and traveling and doing all the things that he does, you start to realize that the people in the story don't know who he is. His, His family, we saw last week, even his own family didn't know who Jesus really was. The religious leaders, the experts, the ones that should have understood better than anybody who this man was, they did not understand. And even his disciples, the people that got to spend day and night, months and months on end with him, they still seem to be confused. And as we go through these chapters of Mark's Gospel, the question of who is this Jesus is a question that is permanently hanging over the entire story until we come to chapter 8. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the, the very center of the book. Mark chapter 8, it's like the hinge, where the whole story turns. It, it, it's almost as if, uh, from the way Mark's presented it, the whole story has been kind of a north story, heading north in the land, and we're going to get to the northernmost place, and we're going to turn south. It's the point at which the story turns, and it all hinges on the question... What do you think of me? Jesus asking his disciples, what do you think of me? And so we'll come to that in a moment. But let's look, first of all, at the story that happens just before he asks them the question. It starts in verse 22. Let's just read that straight through and then think about that story. Try to imagine, if if you can, what this must have been like for this person. Here's a, a blind man. Uh, It's the first blind man to be healed in Mark. There's another one, we'll see him tonight, no pun intended, but uh, we'll we'll have the other blind healing this evening. And they they act a bit like bookends uh, around the section of the book. And we'll see, we'll think more about that tonight. That's not our concern right now. But but this is an important healing and it's a unique healing. Uh, It's not unique because it's a blind man. I've already said there's two of those in Mark. But it's unique for another reason. Among all the Gospels... There's something that happens in this story that we do not see anywhere else. See if you can spot it. Don't worry if you can't. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village must have been an amazing experience, uh, something that we cannot possibly imagine, really, can we? What it would be like to not be able to see years on end, maybe for a lifetime, although it doesn't say that in this case, but we don't know how long this man was blind. And then he meets Jesus, and and Jesus does what Jesus does, and and he can see. Can you imagine? I kind of hope it was a day like this. For that man's sake, don't you? It'd be a shame to be able to see and have it be like most days in uh, Chipping. No, it, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to 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 go from pitch black to suddenly having the beauty and the the, the brightness and uh, and all the the, the colors of of creation all around and the the olive trees and the the leaves and the birds and the uh, the, the faces of people all different from each other and uh, and all the the hair slightly different from each other and the different types of clothing and and the different colors of food and all the fruits. and, uh, And suddenly to see it all would be such an amazing moment. It's not unusual for Jesus to heal someone. We've seen it lots of times in Mark. We see it in all the Gospels. It's not unusual for him to heal a blind person. I think that's the miracle he does the most. Something like six or eight times in the Gospels. It's not unusual at the end of the story to have Jesus say to him, don't go into the village. Remember, we've seen that before, haven't we, in in Mark. It, It seems like Jesus does miracles and then he says shh, keep it down. That's what he's saying to this chap, isn't it? Don't go into the village. You walk into the village, everyone's going to ask you how you know where you're going and why you haven't got your stick anymore. So don't go there because I don't want this spread around. That's not unusual for Mark's gospel. It, it, It seems strange to us, doesn't it? I've always heard, maybe you've heard the same thing, uh, going to church and and I've always thought this and and it's always made sense to me that the reason Jesus did miracles was to demonstrate who he was. If Jesus was sent from God or even if Jesus was God himself, wouldn't it make sense that he would do miracles so that everyone could know that he's not just human, he's divine? And, And yet in Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't seem too concerned about that. Time and time and time again, he does a miracle or he casts out a demon or he he deals with a a situation and then he tells them, just just keep it quiet. Almost as if being famous, almost as if uh, having the word spread, almost as if people knowing about his power was not what he wanted. We'll come back to that in in a minute. So, If it's not unusual to heal a blind man, and it's not unusual to tell him to be quiet, essentially, and um, even the spitting part, I mean, that's a little bit uncouth, isn't it? Um, Can't be doing that sort of spitting stuff. No, no, Jesus did spitting, didn't he? I mean, another time he spit and he made some mud, and he put the mud on the man's eyes and told him to go wash. So that's not that unusual. But what is unusual is the fact that Jesus, how can we put this gently Jesus has to have two goes. Do you notice that? The first time, okay, what do you see? Uh, I see people, okay, good, 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 and they look like trees walking. Ooh, that's not quite right. I mean, that's a bit Lord of the Rings, um, you know, that that's not quite the way it actually is in reality. Hang on, let's try again. That, that's kind of how it feels, isn't it, as you read this? Anybody feel a little bit embarrassed for Jesus? I mean, uh, almost like it would be nice if Mark had left this one out. You know, the one time when the power kind of ran a bit short, when the batteries were low or something. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think the reason that, uh, that this is in here is A, because it happened, and the reason it happened is not because Jesus' power was running short, or that somehow Jesus wasn't able to fully heal with one God. I mean, Jesus could say the word and people would be healed miles away. It has nothing to do with Jesus' power. It's almost like it's putting it round the other way and saying, look how patient Jesus is. You don't get any sense of frustration out of Jesus. You don't get Jesus saying, oh, what do you mean like trees? You people, you don't have enough faith. Let me fix this for you. There's no frustration. There's no tension. He just takes the second step. He, He does, again, what he's done already because that person needed it. I don't know why. But I have an idea why when I look at the Gospel of Mark and I see where Mark has placed this story. Because what's happening here in this story is a picture for us. Of what's happening in Mark over several chapters. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus is not purely about power. Jesus is also extremely patient. And over the course of several chapters, he's been uh, journeying with his disciples. Imagine, if you will, uh, put your sandals on. Imagine that you're with the disciples, traveling with Jesus. It must have been amazing, don't you think? To... to, uh, have breakfast with Jesus to hang around the campfire with Jesus to hear the stories to hear him teaching the crowds and and uh, disputing with the leaders and speaking in parables and explaining in private and and then to travel together and to eat together and and to see Jesus's reaction when uh, when the food he was eating fell on the floor and and to to hear the laugh That would come from Jesus and uh, and to to sort of see him interacting with the people Uh, and I would have loved to have been with them, wouldn't you? And over the course of many months, these men had been with Jesus and the question that had been hanging over their heads is the question that hangs over Mark's gospel. Who is this man? Last week in the evening, we had the uh, The the stilling of the storm. And and they're terrified there's a storm. He stills the storm. And their question after that, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. (laughs) At the end of the story, they're they're terrified. They're afraid of the storm. But once he stills the storm, they're terrified, asking, who is he? There's something about him. What's going on? Who is he? And, And over the course of these chapters... That question in the back of their minds, they're walking with him, they're watching him, they're they're learning and gradually it's becoming clearer, but it's gradual. In fact, it's so gradual that Jesus actually takes them through things more than once. Twice. He he, uh, feeds a a multitude in chapter 6. There's 5,000 men plus women and children. He takes five uh, bread rolls and he feeds 5,000 men. And there they are, picking up the crumbs at the end, and the leftover bits of bread, and they fill 12 baskets full. Uh, and that, that's probably quite a startling moment, if you're one of them. Uh, and then he takes them across the sea, he sends them across the sea. Uh, and as they're going across the sea, he comes across the sea, only he doesn't have a boat, and he's not swimming. He's walking. And they are just... Ah. They can't fathom what's going on. And and he says, don't be afraid. And actually, he says, I am right there. It's kind of interesting, a bit like Mark. It's quite a strong statement. And and there he is walking on the water. And Mark says they were still confused about the bread. (laughs) Okay. And then they get to the other side, and there's some miracles and stuff. You'd think they put two and two together. I mean, come on, guys. He's just fed a multitude in the, in the wilderness, as it were, with bread from heaven. I mean, this is so Bible, isn't it? You know, bread from heaven. Come on. This is, this is, uh, and then he's walking on water saying, I am. Uh, and they're still, who is he? Who is he? And so Jesus does it all again. Yeah, a Different crowd, 4,000 this time, seven rolls. But he feeds them. And at the end of it, they they pick up the leftovers and they've got baskets full again. I think seven this time. Uh, And then they get to go across the sea again. And as they're going across the sea, guess what they're talking about in the boat? They're talking about bread again. You see, when you read through Mark, you get a sense that I've seen that before. Uh, That's happened already. And yet Jesus goes through that with them. Why does he go through that with them? Was it somehow that his presentation wasn't strong enough, that that who he was wasn't clear enough? No, I think it was crystal clear if you had eyes to see. They didn't. And so Jesus patiently took them through it all twice. In fact, if you just let your eyes uh, scan up the page slightly, you, you get the tail end of this conversation. Uh, verse 17: Why are you talking about having no bread? Are your hearts still hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And then he he runs through it all again. So when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, right, right, right. Okay, and when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many then? Seven, Yeah, okay. And he said to them, do you still not understand? He's, he's really trying to draw this out of them. You've seen all of this stuff and you've seen it all again. When are you going to get to grips with who I am? Who, I, who am I? That's the question that's lingering here. And then Mark gives us this story about a blind man and Jesus touches him twice. And then he can see clearly. Put your I know we don't like responding too much in these kind of circles, so maybe just put your hand up this much. But put your hand up just a little bit if you're thankful that Jesus is patient. Ooh, look at that. I know I am. I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't say, hey, I've taught you that. Forget it. I'm moving on. Sometimes we need things twice, don't we? Three times, five times, ten times, fifty times. I mean, I'm a fifty-time person. Jesus patiently works with us to teach us what we need to learn, to help us come to grips with who he is, which is the most important question of all. And so then we come to verse 27 in Mark 8. Here's the hinge, here's the turning point. Having gone through all of that and gone through it again, maybe now they will see clearly. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. That's just... A pause and try to imagine. If you can imagine a map of Israel, that's a bit hard, isn't it? Imagine a map of anything. Doesn't particularly matter at this point. Think of what's right at the top. That's Caesarea Philippi. If you're talking in England terms, it's as if they've been in Lancashire for a while and now they've come to Carlisle. They're right on the border, and from now on, they're heading south to London, okay? So it's in those sort of terms that that they've come to the northernmost point. They're right up at Caesarea Philippi. And uh, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? What's the word on the streets? You've got your ears to the ground, guys. What's being said about me? Jesus, after all, has caused quite a stir. And everyone's got an opinion. Nobody uh, is silent on the issue. And so he just says to them, so, so what are they saying? And they they sort of run through some of the options. They say, well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Hmm. My cousin, yeah. The one that was born six months before me and died. And Okay, that's interesting. Not sure how that could work. How, how do you get reincarnated as somebody who's already alive? I, okay. But what else do they say? Well, some of them are saying Elijah. Wow. That's quite a quite a label. I mean, Eli- why? Well, you know Jesus. I mean, you do miracles and, and he did miracles. Uh, and he never died. And, and so maybe they're saying maybe you're Elijah and you've come back. Okay. Okay, I can see that. But what else? Well, some of them are saying one of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, one of those. Well, that's quite a compliment. Those are the, the big guns in Old Testament terms. But then Jesus... Focuses in on them. They almost as if that first question was kind of a, a prep to get them thinking along uh, you know, certain lines. Okay, so what are people saying about me? But then it says, uh, verse 29, but what about you? Who do you say I am? The question that has been hanging around them for the past eight chapters, the, the, the thing they've been wondering when he's still the storm, what kind of a man is this? Uh, When he walks to them on the water, oh my goodness, what is this? Who is this? What's going on? Who is this? Uh, When he's feeding the multitudes and he's doing it again, gradually it's kind of dawning, gradually they're, they're thinking, could it be, maybe, possibly, is it? I don't know. But at this point he says, okay, bottom line, what do you think about me? What do you think is the truth? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. This is Peter's glory moment. Peter gets so much bad press, but don't miss this. You know, Peter, he opens his mouth, he puts his foot in it. Peter, who does all things wrong, it seems, uh, Peter answered, You are the Christ. That's weighty. That's huge. That's a massive moment. You are the Christ. What did Mark one tell us? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And finally, somebody sees it. You're the Christ. You're, you're the Messiah. Same word, different language. You're the anointed one. That's what it means. The one that, that is empowered from on high. The one that is sent from heaven. The one who's come to deliver. You're the Christ. What does Jesus say? Well, I mean, after eight chapters, you you know what he's going to say. About time. I mean, I've worked with you through all... No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, hey, woo, let's celebrate. This is fantastic. Everybody lift your glasses of orange juice and let's toast Peter because Peter has said something really nice about it. He doesn't say anything like that. What does he say? This is Mark's gospel. He warned them not to tell anyone. <laughs> Shh. Why? If if they finally got it clear that you are the Christ, this is the correct answer, this is the pass the test answer, why does Jesus still want to keep it quiet? Here is where I think we get to see why he's been telling them to keep it hush for eight chapters. Because you cannot have... Mark 8, 29. is that the reference? You are the Christ. You cannot have that without the verses that immediately follow. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 31, he then begin, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. We've not seen that before. For eight chapters, Jesus has been the miracle-working Messiah. He's been the one who's come to to put things right. If if you've got a problem, Jesus can help you. If you've got a disease, Jesus can heal you. If you've got a demon, Jesus can cast it out. And that's all that Jesus has been doing for eight chapters. And now that somebody has finally said, you are the Christ, Jesus says, okay, now let me make this crystal clear. I'm going to die. I'm gonna die. You see, according to Mark and according to Jesus, you cannot have a miracle Messiah who doesn't suffer. You cannot have the Christ without Calvary. You cannot have the Saviour, <clears throat> excuse me. You cannot have the Saviour without his suffering in our place. Jesus is not willing to come <clears throat> to just give us some temporary fixes. Which is, after all, all that healing really is. Jesus didn't come just to deal with disease and deal with demons. He didn't even come just to deliver from the enemies. He came to deal with the root issue. And for that, he had to die. That just seems wrong, doesn't it? This this Jesus, this one that for months on end they've been with and they've they've walked with and they've observed him in action and they've seen his responses and he's never done anything wrong. He's never, ever sinned in any way. He's absolutely the most amazing person they've ever met and now he's telling them that he's going to be killed. No, that's absolutely not right. There's a lot of churches that think that way too. We'll take the Jesus good teacher, we'll take the Jesus uh, moral man, we'll take the Jesus fine example, but we'll downplay the cross because, you know, the cross just doesn't seem fitting for a person as nice as Jesus. To do that is to absolutely miss the whole message of the Bible. Jesus didn't come just to make things nice for a while. He came to deal with the root issue at the, the source of all disease and at the source of, of all demonic activity and at the source of, of all wars and all failure and everything that's wrong in this world. The problem is our sin, yours and mine. And that problem is so big in biblical terms. We are spiritually dead. Jesus came to this world to deal with death. And the only way he could deal with death was to die himself. Doesn't seem right, does it? Which is why Peter, from his glory moment in verse 29, in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Put Jesus in his place. Let's get things straight here, Jesus. None of that, none of that. Calm down. You're not going to die. You're going to be king. We're gonna, we're gonna take this, this ministry somewhere bigger. You know, you, I mean, this is gonna be you're gonna the Romans and the, the 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 throne. I mean, this is gonna go huge. Jesus, come on! And he's trying to rebuke Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Verse thirty three. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Not too gently. He said, "Get behind me, Satan! You do not have in mind the things of God." but the things of men. You see what he says there? He says that the, the human way of thinking about things is entirely backwards. The human way of dealing with issues is entirely upside down. That The human way of coming up with a Messiah, a Christ, is completely flawed. And so if we try to create a Christ in our own image, we'll miss the point. If we create a salvation plan that that somehow is going to make things right between us and God, we'll get it entirely wrong. And so Peter, with all the best will in the world, rebuking Jesus, Jesus says, your thoughts are human thoughts. Your thinking, your voice is the voice of Satan. You are entirely opposed to everything that God plans everything that God intends, everything that God designed. I came as the Christ, and I'm going to the cross. I came to be your Savior, and to do that, I must suffer. This is a powerful moment. Just when you think the disciples are clear, they're they're not clear, and for the next three chapters, they're going to walk under the 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 raging, swirling questions that, that come from Jesus speaking plainly about his death. Yet again, he's patiently working with them, patiently bringing them on, patiently teaching them and instructing them. Because it's not easy to get our hearts and our minds around this, is it? Even for us. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you've read the Bible. Maybe you've read Christian books and listened to Christian radio. And and on every form the government's ever sent, you've ticked Christian with a big smile. And and yet, maybe even we continue to struggle with the fact that the cross is the very center, the very focal point of God's plan. We wish it were another way, don't we? We, we wish there was some other uh, thing that we could do or that God could do. or There's got to be something else, but there isn't. Because that is the seriousness. That is the reality of the mess that this world is in. And so we can complain as much as we want, but Jesus says those thoughts come from the pit of hell. Because God, the way God thinks, the, the, the way God sees things... God looks at this mess, let's make this personal, God looks at you and he says there's only one way that I can get you to be alive the way you are supposed to be. There's only one way that I can give you life and I can bring you into a relationship with me. There's only one way that we can be together and we can relate and we can be uh, everything that it was supposed to be. He looks at you, he looks at me and he says, I'm going to have to die. I just read The uh, Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe with a couple of my girls. Powerful book, isn't it? That point where Aslan is, is just sort of sad, melancholic in some way, and, and in the night he heads off and the two girls go with him. And they don't grasp it, but he knows it. The most powerful creature, he knows, uh, creature is probably the wrong word for Aslan, isn't it? But he knows what he's facing, and he goes, and he allows himself to be killed. That's what Jesus did. You see, at this point, they're right up north, Caesarea Philippi, and from this point on, he's heading south to Jerusalem. Uh, The cross, the death of Christ was no accident. It wasn't that he was trying to come in and get on the throne and things got out of hand and and in the end he ended up dying, bit of a shame, bit of a martyr. That's what the people might say, but it's nonsense because the Bible makes it clear. Jesus predicts it every single chapter for the next three in Mark. Go to Luke, he predicts it six times, that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And on the third day he will rise again. This was God's plan. And until Jesus could make this clear, he wasn't happy for anybody to go around celebrating him. He didn't want uh, the fame. He didn't want the websites. He didn't want the newspaper articles. He didn't want people uh, going around kind of stirring up a fan club. Because all they do is they get excited about the miracles. But he came to do more than miracles. He came to die. And you cannot have a Christ without the cross. It's a lesson that I think we need to learn too, isn't it? Uh, maybe some of us are, are sitting here this morning and, uh, and we've, we've kind of heard this stuff before, but we're sort of on the outside of it and yeah, it's all a bit arm's length, you know. It's kind of intriguing. And, uh, and one thing that you are prepared to accept, you know, I'm not convinced by all the miracles necessarily or uh, still a bit skeptical about different aspects of the Bible's teaching, but one thing that is absolutely clear is that Jesus was a good chap. I mean, he was good. He was, he was a good teacher. He was a good example. He was good. And maybe if, if we will, you know, respond to him, then maybe good things will happen to us. Hear what the Bible says. That is completely, completely wrong. You cannot view Jesus that way. That's simply not an option. To view Jesus as somebody who's good is not enough. Even to view Jesus as somebody who can do you good, it is still to completely and utterly miss the point. Who do you think Jesus is? What do you think of him? And what do you think of him specifically in reference to the clear teaching that he gave, that the reason he came to this world was to die for you? You can't give Jesus the you're a good teacher line and and think, okay, I'm I'm saying good thoughts, all is well. It's not. Jesus came to die and he came to die for you. What do you think of that? How do you respond to that? I suppose there's only two options, really. There's the option that says, I don't need you to die for me. I've got it all under control, thank you very much. I can handle my death my own way. I'm, I'm... You say, I'm dead, I don't feel dead, I'm alive, and I'm going to fix things. Okay, that's one option. Never seen a dead person fix their problem before. Or you can say, okay... You you came, and you came to die, and you came to die in my place so so that somehow I can, even though I'm dead, I can have life, even though I'm uh, completely separated from God, I can be in a relationship with God. I don't grasp that fully. I don't understand it. I don't comprehend it, but I accept it. That's the option. Either you reject or you accept. Either you say, no, thank you, or yes, please. What do you think of Jesus? What is your response to a Jesus who came to die in your place? Yes, please. Or no, thanks. And then there's those of us that already know Jesus. We've we've already accepted. We've already said yes, please. We've already placed our trust in him. But there's a danger that we fall into the Mark 1 to 8 kind of Christianity, isn't there? That now Jesus becomes our genie. I remember being a six, seven-year-old coming up to Christmas time and praying. I was quite fervent in my prayers in December. <laughs> Dear Lord Jesus, I need a dartboard. That was one very fervent prayer for quite a few weeks one year. Didn't get it that year. Obviously didn't pray hard enough. <laughs> I need a dartboard. Oh, and, and, and also, there's this, there's this CD that I really would like to own, too, uh, and would you please give that to me? And oh, I've hurt my wrist playing football, and I can't play football for two weeks. Would you heal my wrist? It's that kind of Jesus, my genie in heaven kind of view of Jesus. Some of us fall into that, don't we, where somehow Jesus is there to serve our needs, Jesus is he's a healer. He deals with demons. He deals with problems. He deals with, with, with issues. He delivers. So Jesus, deliver me. Here I am. I need you. And we fall into that. And I think Mark 8 challenges us again and says, no, 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 no. You've got it all backwards. Jesus didn't come to give you nice things so that you can be comfortable in your life. Jesus came to give you life. And he came to give you life by giving his Even as believers, even as followers of Jesus, there are times where we can end up with somehow a view of Jesus, of the Christ without the cross. The Bible says, may it never be that we conceive of a God that shallow, a God that small, a God who's there to serve us and give us nice things and deal with issues temporarily, when actually the God of the Bible has come to deal with the real issue. Humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that every one of us could know him and live for him and know life and know what it means to really, really be delivered from death itself. What do you think of Jesus? Is your Jesus a good Jesus? Is is your Jesus a a miracle-working Jesus? Is your Jesus a Jesus that, that maybe one of these days will answer the prayer you keep praying because he hasn't come through yet? But you know he will because that's the kind of Jesus he is. Or is your Jesus the Jesus of the Bible? The one who came to die so that we can live.